This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. What we find in true crime often is when people call killers monsters, is this idea that if we can distance killers from ourselves, from our own human urges, then we don't have to deal with the reasons that these people actually manifest. Things like no access to healthcare, poor housing, poor education, these kind of things that society is directly responsible for. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Hannah McGuire and Saruti Bala are the hosts of the true crime podcast Red Handed. On the show, they break down cases that fascinate all of us. And then they wrote a book based on their extensive research into the motives behind some of the most famous murderers in history. First, tell me a little bit about Red Handed, the podcast, and then we'll go into the book. And then let's talk about these stories. So, Hannah, how do we summarize your podcast for the folks who haven't heard it? So if you haven't heard Red Handed, it is a weekly true crime show that now has many offshoots. And what we try and do is cover cases from a geopolitical, economic, social angle. So we've always thought since when we started the show about five years ago, no one goes around murdering someone for no reason. There's always reasons behind it. So we've always tried to sort of get behind that lens to look at crime in a slightly different way. And when we started five years ago, there just weren't that many female voices in podcasting full stop, let alone British true crime female voices. So we were like, hey, we could do that. And then we did. And Saruti, one of the offshoots of the podcast is this book. Yes. And we decided that the book was going to be sort of a culmination of all of the things that we'd learned on Red Handed over the past four years that we had been doing it up until that point. So what the book was, was looking chapter by chapter at different factors that lead someone down a murdery path, whether it's genetics, whether it's their childhood and upbringing, whether it's sex relationships. Ultimately, it was meant to be kind of a look at the things that make us human, make us all human, but how those things get perverted in the mind or experiences of a killer that end up with them killing somebody. Okay, we're going to talk about two cases from your book. Saruti wants to take the first one, the Ken and Barbie killers. So yeah, gosh, this one, it is so, so, so well known. Absolutely. I think it is one of those ones that just the picture alone, it conjured up so many things that people just became obsessed with this case, understandably, given what happens. We really tried to look at this book chapter by chapter and look at different factors that influenced a person on their road to becoming a killer. And this chapter that links closest to the Ken and Barbie killers, Carla Hamalka and Paul Bernardo, is of course, it had to fit into our relationships chapter. So I think one of the things with relationships is we really did a lot of head scratching with this. What were we trying to say? What was the point we were trying to make in this chapter? And it really dawned on us that probably one of the most profound 
things that can happen to a person. One of the most profound sort of factors that influence all of our lives is probably the romantic relationship that we're in. That person is the one who you spend the most time with. They can probably shape your life in more ways than anybody else. So we thought, why should this be any different when it comes to killers? And we actually found some interesting things out. Like, for example, Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, he actually, during the time that he was in his most happy marriage, actually almost completely stopped killing. Hmm. And when he was in his two previous very unhappy marriages, he was killing more than ever. I mean, he does put it down to the fact that he had the love of a good woman and that's why he had stopped doing it. Life circumstances. Precisely. And we also know that a similar thing happened with BTK. So we were like, okay, there are the killers who slow down or stop when they feel that kind of romantic love. Again, a misunderstanding that people think people who are killers can't possibly feel love when obviously they can to whatever extent they do. Then we decided, but maybe let's look at the ones where would both of the people involved in a couple who go to kill have done that had they not met each other? And it was the kind of meeting of these quote-unquote murderous soulmates and the route they took together that we wanted to explore here. And so we picked Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernardo as our kind of key case study here. So anyone who knows the case knows that Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernardo met when Carla was very young. She was working at the time as a veterinary assistant. There was an unfortunate incident in her childhood where she threw a hamster out of a window without a parachute. So yeah, troubling behavior from the offset, even in childhood with Carla, because obviously kids have accidents with animals, but uh, she didn't show any remorse for it, which was probably a bit of a worrying sign. Mm. So um, she meets Paul Bernardo in a hotel when she's there at, I believe, a pet conference. And he just happens to be in the same hotel. And for Carla, it was absolutely love at first sight. She was very much a woman who was very into appearances. And I think Paul Bernardo was a particularly, as much as I hate to say it, a particularly attractive man in a very 80s kind of way. Mm. So the two of them get together almost immediately. I believe the night they meet, they actually go up to the hotel that they're staying in, some allegations even in front of some of their friends. So the two of them sort of get on this whirlwind romance. Paul even moves in with Carla's family. And everybody can kind of see that there is something a bit off. He's quite controlling. He likes to tell Carla how to dress, how to wear her hair, what she's allowed to eat. Very obsessive, very possessive. But Carla seems to like it, as far as people around her could tell. She didn't seem to feel like it was a huge problem. Then things started to get a bit out of hand. Paul started to lose interest in Carla sexually after a while. And so she felt like what she had to do was keep upping the ante every time they were romantically involved, sexually involved. And pretty swiftly, you're going to run out of options to keep up with a man who had a voracious sexual appetite like Paul did, because he wasn't just your average man. Because unbeknownst to Carla, at least at the start, Paul was living a secret double life as the Scarborough rapist, Mm. who was a notorious rapist who had attacked multiple women during the few years that he had been active. And as the Scarborough rapist, Paul never actually killed any of his victims. He would blitz attack women on the street. He would rape them 
and then he would say and make them say incredibly derogatory things. He enjoyed absolutely the idea of, I believe, leaving a victim alive afterwards so that he would know that there was still somebody out there suffering because of something he had done. I think to kill them wouldn't have served Paul's purpose because to him, he was a sadist. To him, the idea that they were still out there suffering was more of a turn on than if they were just dead. So that was absolutely his MO when he was acting separately from Carla. What happens the night that change all of it when they kill Carla's sister? So it's Christmas Eve and Carla decides for Paul's Christmas present that year, she's going to gift him her little 15-year-old sister, Tammy Hamulka's virginity. So Paul's at the Hamulka Christmas party. Everybody goes to bed and Paul, Carla and Tammy stay up much later than everybody else. They slip her quite a few drinks and they lace it with an animal tranquilizer that Carla has brought home from the vets. Once Tammy passes out, Carla uses a rag that's soaked in some sort of ether to keep Tammy unconscious during the assault. And Carla films the entire thing and films Paul Bernardo, her, I believe by this point, fiancé, raping her 15-year-old sister. And even more horrifically, Carla also gets involved with the rape and the sexual abuse of her sister. And Tammy dies because she chokes on her own vomit. And then realizing there's not much they can do, they just clean her up the best they could. They dress her back up, take her down to the basement and then call the police. And unbelievably, the police authorities, everybody just says it's an accidental death. What did they think it was? What, that she drank something and choked in the middle of the night? Yeah, Carla and Paul admit to the much lesser offense of basically saying that, yes, they had been, they shouldn't have been, but they were slipping her 15-year-old sister cocktails and that she had just got too drunk, she'd passed out, and she choked on her own vomit. And this was despite the fact that Tammy had a massive burn on her face from the rag that had been soaked with ether. And nobody seemed to wonder what that was. They just said that it must have been because she was lying in her own sick on the carpet. What about the parents? The parents didn't think something. They're noticing all of this odd behavior with Paul. I guess they don't think that these two young people are capable of that. I mean, if they did, they don't sort of push for this now. There's nothing really said about what the parents think. I think everybody accepts Carla and Paul's version of events, possibly because it's just the least painful version. I mean, your daughter's just died. Do you really want to think that your other daughter and your soon-to-be son-in-law were involved in killing her? Mm. I'm not sure, but this passes by and nothing happens. And so after this, Paul continues his activities solo as a Scarborough rapist. And together, he and Carla continue to kill more girls. And always the way that they do it, when it's a girl that they kill, it's always a victim that's known to Carla. Hmm. And this is interesting because when men tend to kill or commit sexual offenses, they usually go after victims that they don't know. And when women tend to kill, they usually tend to kill people that they know. And I think that this is what kind of lends credence to me that Carla was the one instigating the kills because she always is involved in the victim selection. And looking at the victim she chose, it's always a girl that she peripherally knows, like a friend of a friend or something like that. And she always lures them to a place like their house or something like that, because the two of them move in together after the Tammy incident. Possibly, as you said, Kate, maybe there was some suspicion at home. They lure them home. Again, it's very similar. They always dose the victims with some sort of animal tranquilizer that Carla provides. They rape them and then they kill them. There is one victim who's only known as Jane Doe, probably because she survived, who was let go. But the other girls are all killed. I was going to ask that. What do you think made the change from leaving the victims in humiliation to killing? Was it the addition of Carla? It really felt to me like 
When Paul acts alone, he doesn't kill. He rapes and he releases because that's his sadistic side is what he enjoys. But when Carla's involved, apart from the Jane Doe case, every single victim dies. Mm. And we can only theorize about this, but the only theory that I could come up with that we wrote in the book was the idea that was there something linked to Carla's jealousy? I mean, Paul was raping these women, but was it linked to some sort of perverse jealousy on her part that these women had been with her man and she wanted them gone? She wanted them killed? I don't know. She brought them to the relationship so she could ID all of them, but that does make sense. Remind me, please, of the age difference between these two when this starts. Is she a teenager or is she in her early 20s? She's, I think she's 17 when they meet. She's very, very young and he's not much older. I believe he's in like his early to mid 20s. So she's still like pre-college, but he has a job at PwC. So they're not hugely apart. But what you do see is that Paul is very immature for his age as well. And he also was very controlling. So it's not surprising that he was drawn to a girl who was, I believe, at least five years younger than him. And what was his background? Did you know much about his family? Yeah, his background is a little bit more of a mystery. But what we did find was that Paul Bernardo, he was... Um, so Carla Hamolka's childhood was very normal. She had very loving parents. She had a very normal upbringing. Nothing sort of untoward really happened. The only thing we could find was the hamster incident. But Paul's background is very, very different. So Paul, he grew up in a household where his mum had actually had an affair. and Well, his father was very abusive and his mother had had an affair. And Paul was the result of this affair. Hmm. But he didn't know this until he was a teenager. And one day, it sort of comes spilling out of the family sort of closet, as it were. He discovers who he really is. And then immediately, his parents are sort of very, especially his father, very hostile towards him, calling him a bastard. Obviously, looking at Paul as a reminder to him of his wife's infidelity. But his father was incredibly abusive before this as well. Lots of beatings, allegations of sexual abuse towards Paul's sister in the household, for which she did did take him to court when she was an adult, but I don't believe he was convicted. So I know we can't say that. We'll have to say it was allegations of. But the allegations that his sister made was that Paul's father used to rape her in front of the entire family. Wow. Nothing good going on in that family, unfortunately. And from a very young teenager, Paul was very sexually deviant. His diaries were found by his mother and other people, and they were obviously came to light after his crimes did. But he was writing in there things about wanting to abduct girls, wanting to abduct virgins. So a lot of violent sexual behavior. Yes. He drew lots of pictures of bondage, lots of very, very aggressive sexual behavior from being a young teenager. And these things obviously coupled with then the frustration and the rage that he felt, no doubt the abuse that he suffered at home, it culminated in him becoming the Scarborough rapist at a very young age. He started doing that when he was in his early 20s, which is again, very unusual. You typically don't see a serial offender starting to offend with crimes like that, that early. Surely they usually build up to it with things like um, vandalism and peeping toms and voyeurism and things like that. But he kind of skips straight ahead to what he wants to do. So that's kind of Paul's background. We don't know, or at least I couldn't find much more that was sort of solid evidence about Paul's background. And he had a very dysfunctional relationship with his family, which is why he sort of just moves into the Hamulka family quite quickly. And then we don't really hear about his family too much after that. 
So you have a question at the beginning of your chapter, which is essentially, would either of these people have done this had they not met? Mm -hmm. It sounds like part one of that answer is certainly yes for Paul, wouldn't you think? It's really complicated. And we did actually have lots of conversations about this. And I think that what we typically see with serial rapists is they don't often kill at the start because that's not what really does it for them. But eventually, maybe after the first time they're caught for a rape, they usually learn, as horrendous as it is to say, that the way to get away with rape is to not leave a victim. So I think that Paul would have eventually started killing, if only as a forensic countermeasure. But the Carla point is the interesting one because I really find it hard to shake the idea that he only killed or the victims only died when Carla was involved. And Paul continued acting as a Scarborough rapist after he started killing. So it wasn't like, oh, I loved that kill. Let me now try it again and again and again, as we see with serial killers. He only does it when Carla's there. But would Carla have killed if she hadn't met Paul? I don't think so. I think she would have been... She basically has a very extreme personality. And I don't think she would have ever been in a super functional, great relationship. The people who knew her saw her as being quite a difficult person. But would she have killed? I don't think so. I guess we'll never know. And I think also the other thing to say about Carla is a lot of people... Some people want to paint her as purely a victim in this, as she paints herself. But things like when she went in to report Paul, she only did it after he beat her so badly that her eyes were both completely black and she ended up in an emergency room. And when she went to go and report him to the police, on her wrist, she was wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. And that Mickey Mouse watch belonged to one of the victims. Hmm. That is trophy keeping behavior if I ever saw it, surely. And by this point, Paul and her were apart. He wasn't there making her do it for his pleasure or his excitement. She chose to put that watch on herself. And we know she was involved in that kill because there's video evidence of it that was just found too late for criminal conviction. So she knows what that watch was. It wasn't like it was just a present from Paul and she put it on. So I don't know. I find it hard to buy. And I don't really think many people are saying it these days, but uh, Carla enjoyed it. There's no doubt about that. Tell me the end of this story. So they've killed Tammy. She's 15, but no one seems to be suspicious. Then they go on and Carla's luring women in who she knows and Paul is sexually assaulting them and then they kill them. How many victims are we talking about? And then how does this begin to unravel? They killed three girls. First was obviously Tammy Hamalka in 1990. Then they wait a few months in the following year in 1991. They kill a 14-year-old girl called Leslie Mahaffey. And then they actually wait another year until 1992 to kill their final victim, who was 15-year-old Kristen French. And the pressure starts to build as I think their relationship starts to deteriorate. So Paul had always been controlling and abusive towards Carla, but the physical abuse really started to ramp up. I think again, because Carla was constantly trying to up the ante and keep him interested. But I think a man like Paul Bernardo, he could only be so interested for so long in one woman, even if it was Carla. She would do things like, and this is grotesque, but she would dress up in Tammy's schoolgirl clothes when they would have sex and things like this. She was trying everything she could to keep him interested. But I think he started to slip. Their relationship became more and more abusive. And as I said, he eventually put her in hospital after one physical attack on her, at which point her parents were like, enough's enough. And also the police were starting to connect the dots because he had left so many women alive who he had raped as the Scarborough rapist that one woman actually came forward and gave a perfect 
description of him. And the police artist that drew the sketch, it looked so much like Paul Bernardo that people that Paul Bernardo knew were making jokes that he looked like the Scarborough rapist. Wow. So her parents are like, this is enough's enough now. You need to tell the police that Paul Bernardo did this to you. And by this point, obviously, the police are obviously also suspecting him of being the Scarborough rapist. There's a DNA breakthrough and they're on to him. And Carla knows that her time's up because she knows that she's been involved in the murders. So she gives him up very much in order to save herself. And the surprising thing is she told the police about the videotapes even though she knows she's in the videotapes. The unbelievable thing is that the police don't find the videotapes. Yeah, they don't find them. So they have to go ahead. They get Carla on some very minimal charges. So there was no other evidence other than... They had DNA because when Paul had been committing the rapes, they had DNA from that. It was just that when they took his DNA sample, it's something ridiculous. Like they took Paul Bernardo's DNA sample and it sat there for years not being tested Hmm. because they took so many DNA samples from all the men in the area that they didn't actually work their way through them. So eventually DNA is starting to connect Paul to the crimes and the police need Carla to basically work with them. She was going to be their star witness in the Paul Bernardo case. So she gets a very, very lenient sentence and she's actually free today and she's not even on the sex offenders registry. What? How's that possible? Because she wasn't convicted of a sexually related charge. Okay. So she was never put, because they found the tapes of her sexually assaulting her own sister after she had already been convicted. And she basically, apparently now, even works with children in schools. So that's pretty horrifying. But Paul Bernardo, he was convicted and he's very much in jail. Hannah, you can jump in on this too. Did you guys both discuss this together? You discussed this together and concluded what? That it was likely that Paul was going to continue on with or without a partner, but that Carla was a big old question mark. You certainly can have psychopathy. You could certainly be a sociopath and never be violent. What we're wondering, right, is would she have been capable of doing this on her own? And we just aren't sure. I think... Yes, she's a lot of things, a question mark being one of them. I think what so often happens in true crime is that when there are couple killers, which is rare, our go-to is that, oh, actually, the woman must be under the spell of this horrendous man and she's just either doing what she's told or trying to impress him or so desperately overwhelmed with how much of a bad boy he is that she can't help herself. I don't think that's Carla at all. I think it's we are trained to perceive women as being so submissive that they couldn't possibly have the idea on their own. Do I think she would have killed without Paul? I don't think I'm completely convinced it's a no. I totally agree with her. I think Paul will have got there eventually. But I think we're too quick to write women off as drivers of violent crime. I agree. It sounds like she would have been someone who would have had maybe some kind of violence in her life. It might not have been sexual assaults and murders, but something. Yes. So it is concerning that she's out. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Because I think once she got a taste for it, I think she realized how much she enjoyed it and she kept going. And I think if she'd have got a taste for it outside of Paul, the same thing would have happened. Okay. 
Okay, let's move on to a different chapter. We've covered couple killers. Now let's talk about a really unique case, the toy box killer, except he was never actually convicted of killing anyone, right? Hannah, tell me about that case. So it's David Parker Ray, the toy box killer. And we obviously for Red Handed have for the last five years been eyes deep in really quite horrific stuff. But this is the only one I ever dreamed about. Oh. Like when we first covered this on the show years ago, I like I have fully had nightmares for about a week. And I think for me, what is so horrendous about it is that there's a woman whose name is Kelly Garrett. She's very young. She gets married. And then after her wedding, immediately after her wedding, she goes missing for three days. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it's in between Elephant Butte, New Mexico, and Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. That is in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And she goes missing. Yeah. So she just disappears and then she's delivered back to her house and her disgruntled husband. And she's been gone for three days. And he's like, where have you been? I have been like through the roof worried about you. Where have you been? You've gone off. You've cheated on me. She was like, I don't know. I can't tell you. I don't know where I've been. They get divorced, move on. And then years and years and years later, everything unravels with the case. And there's a videotape recovered from David Parkeray's property. And on the videotape, it's a videotape of a woman being like brutally tortured inside. We call them caravans. You guys call them trailers. Mm. And it's like kitted out as this like torture dungeon. And there's a CCTV video footage of this woman just being defiled. And the woman in the videotape has a very distinctive tribal swan tattoo on her calf. And parts of this tape are released to try and identify this woman. And Kelly sees it and she says, that's me. That's where I was. She didn't remember any of this. None of it. She had no idea where she had been. Is this a a right place to introduce David Parker Ray and what we know about him? Exactly. David Parker Ray is frustrating for multiple reasons. Firstly, because he got away with it. And secondly, we just don't know that much. It's estimated that he had up to 60 victims. Wow. He went after less visible people like sex workers or people just passing through or homeless women or any of those. The less dead was his absolute target. The only reason that anyone got onto him in the first place was because one woman got away and she was running down the street in Elephant Butte with a a chain around her neck in the middle of the day, completely naked. Cynthia Vigil's her name. So that's the only reason the police had any attention drawn to the situation at all. But nothing really happens for quite some time. But what he was doing was he had an array of accomplices, including his daughter, his wife, his cousin. Wow. And they would pick up girls for him, essentially, from a local bar, deliver them to him in his trailer torture caravan. What did he call it? The toolbox or Satan's Den? Satan's Den is what it said on the wall, Mm -hmm. yeah. And he would drug these women with essentially a central nervous system depressant to make them forget. And some of them would remember some things and some of them would remember absolutely nothing. So he would drug them, he would leave them in like a locked cupboard essentially, and then he would play them a tape of him speaking, saying like all of the horrendous things that I will not repeat. And then he drugs them and then tortures them for as long as he wants to and either lets them go or one would presume they die. And that's the thing is like, you actually don't know how many victims he killed because there's just no set number on how many people this actually happened to. And he got away with it. Yeah, yeah, totally scot-free. What I don't understand is what motivation does his family have to help, especially two women? Are they intimidated by him? 
the daughter, I think it was just an incredibly abusive relationship and she just wanted to impress her dad. His wife, Cindy Hendy, I think she was involved in it to a lesser extent than someone like Carla Hamolka, but she absolutely knew it was going on and didn't say anything. Whether that's because she was scared of him. He was a very domineering character yeah. though. I think in any things you watch of him being interviewed or if you watch his trial, it's very terrifying. He is a terrifying man. And I think that stands alone from even knowing what he did. He is a very authoritative person. When you're looking at him, you would be scared of this guy. And I think just looking at his childhood, you kind of see where that, because he is a through and through sexual sadist. And I think the reason we put him in the sex chapter was that we really wanted to explain to people exactly what a sexual sadist was. And David Parker Ray, even though we could never pinpoint whether he'd killed anybody, which he probably absolutely did because you can't commit the kind of violent offences he was committing against individuals and not accidentally at least kill some people. But that was never really his end goal. And if you look back at his childhood, he basically had a very violent upbringing. His grandfather was an alcoholic who beat him almost every single day. And he would cut out magazines from his granddad's porn magazines. That were given to him. He didn't find them. They they were were gifts. Yeah. Wow. As part of his like becoming a man from his grandfather. And he would cut all of these pornographic images out of these magazines and then paste them together in kind of just grotesque collages as a child. So I think obviously not everybody who faces trauma like he did as a child, goes on to develop sexual sadism. But I think at some point for David Parker Ray, violence and sex and pleasure mesh together in a way that he could never then pull apart again. And he lent into it as hard as he possibly could. Let's pause here for a second because I do want to know a little bit about how this unravels for him and the trial and how he gets away with this. But I'm listening to these two stories that you're telling me and they're both terrible and you had to write about them and do research. And I just can't bring myself to pick stories like that. My first book was about John Reginald Christie, who was in your neck of the woods from Tin Rillington Place. Oh, yeah. Who murdered all these women and stashed them all over. That was pretty traumatizing for me to write, especially because it involved, you know, the death of a little girl. And I have just said, I can't, I don't think I can do those kinds of stories as a really big project where I have to spend a lot of time and research on them. So you're talking about nightmares and all of that. Does any of this put you off of true crime, these particular kinds of stories? Is it more difficult for you moving forward now that you've had to do this research for the book? It's an occupational hazard. And I think it is something that people ask us often of like, oh yeah, how does it impact your mental health and all of that sort of stuff? And I was like, well, it kind of doesn't. What impacts our mental health is being stressed and not having any sleep and people abusing us on the internet. Like that's the hard bit. Like the research and the reading is really, really interesting. But I think for both of us, we just have such a like insatiable fascination for how people work and crucially what makes people frightened. Like what are we as humans afraid of that, even if we tried to step away from true crime, I don't think we'd be able to. Yeah. No, I would agree. I think there's a lot of horrible stuff that happens in the world all the time. And I think that like many people, Hannah and I are drawn to the darker side of human behavior. Really, that was the key point of the book as well. It's like looking at the perversion of all of these very human things and looking at the kind of extremes of human behavior. That's what we're really interested in. It's not just like, oh, getting off on this particular murder because it's so gruesome. It's like this idea of how, what could possess a person to do this? And again, coming back to the fact that there is no simple answer. Yes, with David Parker Ray, you can say he was abused by his granddad and all of these things. But that happens to a lot of people who don't go on to do what he did. Right? Why did he do it? And I think we'll never have the answer. Of course not. But I think for both Hannah and I, the intellectual 
curiosity that we have towards these things trumps our fear of them. It's probably why we keep going. Okay, so back to David Parker Ray. Hannah, tell me what happens next. What happened is eventually David Parker Ray is put on trial for crimes against Cynthia Vigil, who's the lady who's running down the street in the middle of the day with a chain around her neck. And then also a lady called Angelica Montano, who was actually picked up on the highway by a police officer. And she told him, I've just been locked in a caravan for three days and this guy tortured me. And now I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. And he's giving her a lift. But because she's a sex worker, he doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe her story. He knows her. He's seen her around. And he's like, oh, she's just making it up. And then years go by and it all unfolds. And he's like, actually, that sounds a bit familiar. (laughs) So he's tried for crimes against Angelica Montano and then also against Kelly Garrett, the lady with the swan tattoo. But the first trial is a mistrial. So all 12 counts that are brought against him, just poof, gone. Why? What happened? They couldn't agree? I mean, there wasn't enough evidence or... It was mainly evidence not being kept properly or being submitted improperly. Okay. So the defense just managed to poke quite a lot of holes. And then eventually it was a hung jury. And that's the problem is that David Parker Ray, his defense was always that those women consensually came to my caravan. Hmm. So because they never find any bodies and the three women that are linked in the charges, he says, she's lying. She's lying. She's lying. They were all there consensually. They're just saying it now because they're embarrassed it's all coming out. And that's basically his defense. So it kind of becomes, he said, she said, because there are no bodies, there's no proof Mm. that anybody was killed. And because these crimes against these women had happened so long ago, there was no way to prove what had actually happened. The forensic evidence was lacking. The evidence that was there was stored improperly. It was just a myriad of fuck-ups, basically, throughout the entire thing. Did they try to pressure his family into flipping on him? His daughter... Yes, mm. his daughter. They tried to pressure his daughter. They get, also get Cindy Hendy, his girlfriend or wife, to also turn on him. He did actually say that his daughter had nothing to do with anything and he took the rap. And he did go to prison for some very minor charge. It wasn't for murder. Ray agreed to a plea bargain in which he was sentenced in 2001 to 224 years in prison for numerous offences in the abductions and sexual torture of three young women. So those three young women. And basically his plea bargain was in exchange for his daughter, Glenda Jean Jesse Ray, basically not being pursued. Oh, wow. Or not being pursued as strongly for her role as an accomplice. I think it's interesting here to look at somebody who was quite clearly an extreme psychopath, but he still seemingly loved his daughter because in the end, I guess you could say that he had nothing left to lose, but he did only agree that plea deal if they wouldn't go after her anymore, even though she had helped him lure young women to their fates. And yeah, he just died in prison. He served like hardly any years and he just died of a heart attack in prison. And never a murder conviction, just lots of other things. Never a murder conviction, never a murder conviction. It was just for the abductions and sexual torture. But even in that, it was only because he settled on a plea bargain. Had they gone to court, I don't know what would have actually happened because there wasn't really that much evidence that they could point to. So what did you learn from this case? Why was he important in the book? I know you said he went under the sex crimes chapter. Sure. I think the reason we knew that sex had to go in the book is that it fundamentally drives literally everything. It's what we're programmed to do evolutionarily as we're programmed to procreate. And it sounds like brutalist, but it is 
after you peel back the layers of everything, fundamentally pretty true. So if sex is such a driving force for everyone, then it has to be a driving force for killers as well. And I think what we discovered when writing the sex chapter was that your sexuality starts developing a lot younger than many people realize. And people who go through sexual abuse as children, absolutely by no means does that necessarily mean that everyone who has been abused goes on to be a killer. That's not what anyone's saying. But when it comes to a paraphilia, like a harmful sexual desire, when those develop, it is more likely than not that someone will have had some sort of abusive sexual disruption in their very early childhood. And then just as our childhood shapes all of us, because of things that happen to us, not things that necessarily we made happen ourselves, it does shape you in the end. And sex plays a huge part in who we all are in the end. And for killers, it was no different. Yeah. And we actually discovered during the research that almost 80% of serial killers who are currently incarcerated in the United States are there on sexually motivated crimes, um, sexually motivated kills. It's exactly what Hannah said. Sex is such a huge driver. We wanted to understand the way in which it influences killers. And it comes back to what I was saying about that meshing together of violence and sexual pleasure in the mind of a serial killer or in the mind of a sexual sadist, we should say. Because actually for sadists, often the death part isn't really the part that they're interested in. They want the victim alive as long as possible. And that was actually another thing we really wanted to kind of explain exactly what a sexual sadist was because we thought there was a little bit of misunderstanding about that among some of our listeners from the podcast. So really what we discovered was described so well by this gentleman named Dr. Lee Meller. And we actually used his triangle of sexual sadism to explain it in the book, which is the idea that it's not actually the act of inflicting the pain on the victim that gets the sexual sadist off. It's the reaction that the victim has to the pain that's what turns the sexual sadist on. So it's the screaming, it's the fear, it's the terror. That's what it is. And the action is actually just a means to impart that from them. And that's why you can have people who are into sadism, but if it's consensual and they're doing it with a consenting partner, that's okay. And it's someone who's into masochism. But a true sexual sadist in this sense can never have consent. It's not about the consent. They can never have that because they would never be able to find a victim that would be able to withstand the level of pain they need to inflict. So it's not actually about the consent. It's just about that they would never be able to find somebody who would be okay with it. So yeah, that was really the key reason. And we ended on sex because it felt like the right place. It felt like we'd reached the peak of human motivators at that point. Why do you all think that this is important, breaking these down by chapter and these bits of information that law enforcement have been gathering for years? I mean, this is what the FBI did in the 70s by interviewing Edmund Kemper and Bundy and all of these people to try to gather this information. But what do you think it is to what ends? What can we as listeners get out of this type of information? Is it preventative, how to stay out of situations or spot things? I think we've always said at Red Handed, we never have like a grand motivation. We're not going to sit here and say, we're going to save your life if you read this book, or we're going to change the world of the way everybody thinks about true crime and victims and killers. We would never hope to have such grand ambitions for ourselves. I think the reason for writing the book was purely as a reflection of all the things we'd learned, and also as accidentally turned into a bit of a myth busting, but also because it felt like a place that we could put down all of these things from the perspective of not being experts. So if anybody reads the book, you'll discover that we're not actually telling it from the perspective of, and we know all of these things. We're actually trying to write it in the perspective of people who are going on a journey of discovery, who have at the start a lot of questions, who yes, have 
more knowledge of true crime than the average person, but who are going on a journey of discovering things throughout the book. And that's what it was meant to be. It's really meant to be for people who are really interested in getting a broad perspective on lots of different topics within the true crime space, but not in a watered down way. We just wanted it to be from a non-expert's perspective because we have no agenda. We weren't trying to say, hey, this thing I wrote papers on for years might not actually be true. We were free to kind of debunk anything and question anything. And hopefully that's what we succeeded in doing. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Brandon Presser on his trip to a remote island and its murderous history. When they arrive on the island, the mutineers, 18 years later, 18 years of solitude, only one of the men is left. Folger asks this man immediately when he realizes that the mystery of the bounty has been solved. Where is everyone else? And he says, swept away by desperate contention. Who's going to rule the island? So they all murdered each other. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.